Hello everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where we discuss big questions that pop up as we're reading through the Bible this year. And we also aim to discuss and answer viewer questions as well. So if you have any, pop them down in the comment section below or email us because we'd love to discuss your ideas on upcoming episodes. Now, if this is your first time here, my name's Corey and I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Hey, how you doing? Good, you? Good. Ready? Ready to discuss? Yes, ready I'm to ready to discuss. Time? So today we're going over <laughs> what we read this week, which is 1 Kings 8 to 2 Kings 8, mm -hmm. which is, again, more kings, but also for two prophets. Yes. Yes, a very important prophet. Lots of chapters yeah. about these important prophets. Yes. Yeah. In fact. In the kings. That's right. <laughs> in the time period of the kings, which right. most prophets were, interestingly right. enough. Okay, so today our big question is going to be about why God forgives the most evil people, uh, people who even fall back into evil in our reading. We're also going to be talking about the man of God from 1 Kings 13. We're going to be talking about Elijah and Elisha, uh, the differences between the kingdoms of northern Israel and Judah, because in that history, the kingdom splits. Really interesting stuff coming up. So why don't we just jump right in? Okay. So let's just right Yes. Okay. I'll do it. Sure. First question. <laughs> okay. What's the deal, the man of God guy? Like right. What, what's his deal? Okay. Okay. So, so we're talking First Kings thirteen. First Kings thirteen. It's very weird. Right. So he comes in. Mm -hmm. Right. Does okay. a prophecy. Doesn't. He's like, oh, I'm not supposed to get food. And this guy's like, just come on, we'll hang out, we'll have some food. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I don't want to get food, but okay, I'll, I'll do it. And he gets eaten. So <laughs> he what, gets eaten. So by like, <laughs> I really like your summary. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's very crude. Yeah. The loose details. Yeah, the loose okay. details. Okay. Yes. So what has happened in the history of Israel at this point is that the kingdoms are now split. So we've got the kingdom of Northern Israel and the kingdom of Southern Judah. Northern Israel has all different kings. Southern Judah is ruled by the descendants of David. We have a man of God from Judah. So a prophet who's called to go to Northern Israel, specifically to the city of Bethel and prophesy against Northern Israel, against Jeroboam and against the city of Bethel. And this is because King Jeroboam has set up two uh, religious centers in Northern Israel, one at the city of Bethel and one at the city of Dan. And he set up golden uh, calf idols there uh, that, that are supposed to represent God, uh, and which obviously is outlawed, it's evil. Uh, but the idea here is Jeroboam is thinking to himself, well, the kings of David, the kings of Judah control the temple. They control the religion of Israel. And this is very bad for me because the people will be tempted if we make yearly pilgrimages into Judah to the temple mount. They're going to be tempted to then follow the king of that temple. So Jeroboam recreated the religious system of Israel. You can still say, stay faithful to God, but he taps in on this imagery in the ancient world of uh, cows and calves, and he sets up idols. He sets up his own temples, one in Bethel and one in Dan, and he's like, still worship God, but here at these cities, guys. Um, which, of course, is, is a great apostasy. So we have this man of God from Judah called to go into Israel and condemn Israel, condemn Bethel, condemn Jeroboam for this action. Uh, so that's that's essentially the right. crux of the issue. It's an anonymous guy. Yes, this man yes. of God goes in and um, he's told to not go back from the way he came, but to go in and make a circuit. Don't stop. Don't eat food. Just do the business and come out. Uh, but there's another prophet of God, an old prophet of God who's living in Israel. And he actually goes and tests the man of God. He says, no, it's okay. God appeared to me and he told me that you can actually eat food with me. And so the man of God's like, well, all right. So not, not a prophet, a false prophet. No, no, it's, it never says that he's a false prophet. That's why it's like, what's the deal here? Okay. What's the deal? What is going on? But Technically, because he's no, so, he's, yeah, okay. Well, he, okay. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, it's debatable, but I don't okay. think so. Never, it doesn't hint that he's a false prophet, but anyway, um, he 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 provides this test for the man of God, okay, and the man of God fails the test, he stops and he eats. And the prophet of God then gives the old man, the old prophet of God, then gives a true word of God, and he says, Because you've listened to me, because you've eaten with me. 
you are going to die. God is going to put you to death. And so on the man of okay. God's way, on the man of God of Judah, on his way home, he gets mauled by a lion and something very strange happens. Uh, he's riding on his donkey. He gets mauled by the lion and then the lion and the donkey stay by the body of the man of God. And everyone who passes by is like, what is happening? Why is there a lion guarding right. a body and a donkey guarding a body and they're not fighting? Uh, so essentially that's what happens in 1 Kings 13 and it is tremendously weird. So what's the deal with the man of God? Twofold. Um, uh, a reason why uh, the lion and the donkey stay beside the body of the man of God I believe is is to make it obvious that there is a sign that's going on. Everyone should pay attention to what has happened to the man of God and what has happened to the man of God. He has been judged. Why? Why was his life taken from him? Because he was given a direct word of God that he knew was the direct word of God. And instead of following that direct word of God, as soon as he hears someone else tell him, no, it's okay, God told me. And he follows that voice instead of God's voice, judgment is brought on him. Now think about what Northern Israel had done. They had received the word of God. They knew that they were supposed to worship God in the temple of God, in the place where God had chosen to put his name, which was Jerusalem. They knew that. They knew that they were not supposed to follow idols. But Jeroboam comes along and says to them, ah, you can worship God in Bethel and Dan and hear the images that represent God's power. I can imagine him saying something like that. And they're like, oh, okay. And they listen to Jeroboam instead of listening to the law that they had received and the covenant that they had made, they and their ancestors had made with God. And so what was going to happen? Judgment was going to come on the nation of Israel, uh, and 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 it would. So I believe the deal with the man of God in First Kings thirteen is that his life and judgment represents the the life and judgment of northern Israel. And the reason why God had the the lion and the donkey guard the body of the man of God was to signal to northern Israel. Something weird is going on here. There is a sign. This man's life and death is a sign do, for us. Do you think that the donkey like symbolizes perhaps Judah and the lion symbolizes Israel in some sense um, or vice versa? I lean more towards the that the lion symbolizes Assyria and and Babylon. Okay. Because those were going Assyria specifically um both Babylon as well, but the the lion had deep implications in Assyria. Okay. It was a symbol of the king, and the king hunted the lion. And and anyway, right. and Assyria was the tool that God used to bring judgment on northern Israel. So very literally, if the man of God represents northern Israel, the people of northern Israel were killed by Assyria, whose royal symbol was a lion. Right. And then what about the donkey then? Um, the donkey absolutely could represent Judah um, uh, um, as kings rode on donkeys. Right. And the, the line of David is always pictured of ri as riding on donkeys. Um, and the donkey wasn't... Okay, so Judah was not um, successfully killed by right. Assyria, by the lion. Right. So it's a, it's a loose connection. It's an interesting connection. It could totally work. Uh, but that would be if if the if the animals are going to be symbolic, I think they're more symbolic of Assyria and Judah, yeah, the lion and the donkey, and then the, the man of God representing northern Israel, I just have, because of what happened, yeah. how Israel is ultimately judged. I haven't studied this too much, so I'm, I'm trying to think about the greater context in terms of the narrative. Mm -hmm. Because generally speaking, when you have something like this happen, um, it is a signal to the reader not just like, oh, God's at work, because you know that's the Bible, God's at work. Mm -hmm. You know that everything's about that. So there's symbols within these elements that are telling you something, even prophetic, so that's a prophetic narrative. Mm -hmm. It's telling you something, hey, the narrative is giving you a prophetic detail about what's to come. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, given that it's in Scripture, it's not just to be like, hey, oh, this man of God, God, he tried to do it, but he did something wrong, and he's anonymous. Um, 
it, it's it's clearly pointing to something that's bigger. Yeah. And I wish I studied this more to figure out what that is. But I think you nailed it on the head for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I I do think that like I yeah after studying it I I I'm. I'm pretty convinced in it. I, I could be wrong. I yeah. could be convinced otherwise. Even the symbols, but, your yeah, stuff. Yeah, okay. I think I think it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, but yeah, because right. even um, so, the the end of the of the narrative here, we see the old prophet of God. He goes to the body and he says, "Alas, my brother!" And he mourns over the man of God, and he says he buries him in his own tomb, and then he says to his sons. When I die, bury me in the grave where this man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. So we have this prophet from Judah. His words are going to come true. The prophet in northern Israel who's known by the kings, he's saying yes. So it's like a double prophecy. Right. And then the, the narrative ends by, by saying this. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests from the high places, from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. Remember that this, this priests are supposed to come from the tribe of Levi. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face okay. of the earth. So we've got the we've got the house of Jeroboam being destroyed, but also in the greater context northern Israel itself being destroyed because of how it prostituted itself right. to the foreign gods against God. And also, too, you have that relationship there where it's like Jeroboam was amounting himself false priests. Yeah. So, but what yep. there's an interesting relationship there with the fact that the, the man of God got mauled for not listening to God. Um, so because I'm not saying that the man of God was a false, he's clearly not a false prophet, but the point here is that... You, uh, if he does represent, like you're saying, Israel, uh, the the men of God that are supposed to be there aren't being the men of God. They're not listening, mm -hmm. and therefore they will be mauled like by Seer, like what you're saying. Yeah. So he even he even strongly, from what you just read, it sounds like he even strongly symbolizes the what Jeroboam is doing that causes his defeat. Mm -hmm. He's amounting false priests to, to just tell him whatever he wants, essentially. Yeah. And so a real prophet of God comes, but ultimately he doesn't listen to that word. Just yeah. like the man of God is listen to that word, and then everything gets yes. goes downhill from there. So the the ultimate moral of First Kings thirteen that we see is follow the word of God without without fail, even if someone who you think is more authoritative than yourself comes to you and gives you a different word, you don't listen to it. You listen to what you know to be the word of God, right? What you know to be the word of God, and. Um, Northern Israel was in a position to know what the word of God was. Jeroboam was in a position to know what the word of God was. And those uh, false priests were in a position to know what the word of God was. And they chose to disobey it. Right. Even despite the warning of multiple prophets of God. Right. And so they brought destruction upon them. It's an ironic themselves. prophecy. That it's an, yes. It's an, it's an irony in the prophetic yes. narrative. Yeah. So very sad, but interesting. All right. I, I got another one for you then. Sure. Okay. So it's kind of related in a thematic sense. Relates to First Kings fourteen. Okay. So why would God give Solomon riches when He knew Solomon would fall? Especially given that in Deuteronomy seventeen, God says that kings do not amount abundance of wealth for themselves. Right. So it, it sounds kind of like God's contradicting Himself. What do you think? It does, and and so uh, it's interesting to put it here in First Kings fourteen because First Kings fourteen records the loss of all of Solomon's wealth. Right. So Solomon's son Rehoboam inherits Solomon's wealth, but um, Pharaoh Shishak, uh, Pharaoh Shishak comes in, and he plunders. Israel. He plunders Judah. He plunders the temple. He plunders the the palace of Rehoboam, which was inherited from Solomon, which was inherited from David. Yikes! So all this wealth is lost in the very next very next generation. But it it does on the face of it, we know from Deuteronomy seventeen that God does say to you know in in His law for kings that they were not to multiply riches, and and in the list is wives horses and chariots, and silver and gold. These, these things were not supposed to be amassed by kings. In our context, it, it takes a little bit of work to understand why, but in the ancient context, it would have been pretty obvious. It's because those were the three things that 
that humans could do to secure themselves, to secure their kingdoms. So silver and gold, they could hire mercenaries, they could uh, um, buy their freedom from invading armies. Well, instead of besieging my city, I will just give you this incredible amount of silver and gold and become your vassal, just leave us all alive. Uh, horses and chariots, pretty obvious to see how they could use horses and chariots. They could trust in horses and chariots rather than in gods when their military might. And with, with wives, political alliances were sealed with marriages in the ancient world. So we see David doing this. We see Solomon doing this to an insane degree, making peace treaties with other nations and sealing those peace treaties with a marriage. Super common. But God does give Solomon great wealth. And I would say that this seems to be like not just God providing for Solomon, but also providing a test for Solomon of Solomon's loyalty. Uh, because we see God doing a similar thing to Israel in the time period of the conquest where God says, I'm not going to drive out all of these nations all at once. I'm going to do it little by little, not only for the land, but also for you to test you to see if you will remain faithful to me. Um, so I, I think that this could have been a, a pretty decent test for Solomon to see if he would still choose to depend on God or whether he would allow, um, allow this to corrupt him. Right. Well, I think that Another way to look at this, as opposed to God just always just putting people in compromising positions, um, God allows because it's First Kings three. Mm -hmm. It was he, you know, when God gives Solomon wisdom, he goes, "What would you want?" And Solomon goes, "I need wisdom to rule the people righteously and justice and stuff like that." Yes. And then God goes, "Because you didn't ask for fame, fortune, and a long life, I'm going to give you these things anyways." Right. Um, uh, so, in other words. God provides for him, but anything that, if you know the law of God, because so God gives you these things, I think it's a test in and of itself, but I think it's God providing for Solomon. But because, because if you're leaning, oh, God's going to give me wealth, you can lean on this idea. Solomon could have leaned on this idea that I don't have to worry about the wealth department, mm -hmm. right? The, the finance department, fiscal, my, my fiscal responsibilities. I need to focus on ruling the people righteously. And that's it's the first thing you see happen immediately after the prayers. Right. He judges the two prostitutes. The difficulty is, is that as his intelligence and wisdom grew, you say it becomes notable that he starts looking at the economy, politics, um, animals and plants. He starts looking into the world itself for creation. And so as he starts, it seems like he starts really looking into, you see this in Ecclesiastes, he looks into what does it mean to be wise, earthly wisdom? What does it mean? Like, so he starts striving at all kinds of wisdom, not just seeking godly wisdom, but seeking earthly wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, and not to say that there isn't wisdom in earthly wisdom, but at the expense of godly wisdom, there's no, there can't be a earthly wisdom at all. Right. So in other words, by earthly wisdom, what do we mean? We mean like just being reasonable, uh, looking into like, you know, how should I govern this nation economically? Things that are not of the spiritual, not spiritually inclined. Uh, but he starts having an emphasis on these things, right? Mm -hmm. Even to so far, I think in Ecclesiastes, like he even tried to understand what it was like to be mad. And he put himself right. in, so far in these shoes that he drove himself mad. Right. And he's like, you just can't do that. Um, so long story short, I guess what I'm saying here is by this test, that God providing, it, it, it can be a test, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it didn't have to, it didn't have to go down the road that it was. Like, yes, it is a test yeah. in and of itself. Yep. Because... Solomon has a choice. Do I just obey what Deuteronomy 17 says? Or do I obtain it by other means? Do I, I, I actually start gathering this type of wealth for myself? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't listen. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I'm, and I'm confident that they would have, that is the one verse that would be in their heads. Mm -hmm. Like if there's anything in the law that directly pertains to their office, mm -hmm. Deuteronomy 17 directly pertains to the office of kingship. Yeah. So it would have to be, that would be something explicitly driven in their heads, mm -hmm. right? That they have to explicitly reject. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, I guess what I'm saying is, is that it is a test, but it's also God's provision. It's also a blessing. It's also a blessing. Which is fair because yeah. God presents it as a blessing. Mm -hmm. That That is a fair, yeah. 
Yes. It's not just a test. You're right. Yes. Okay, your your point is well taken. God presents it as a blessing because you have not asked for this, but you have you have see, you have sought me first. You have sought my wisdom. Right. I will also bless you. And this is actually picked up on and used by Christ. Right. Um, in Matthew chapter six, uh, when he's talking about not worrying, not focusing on physical things and physical wealth, right. uh, he goes, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Right. So even Christ in the context of what is it that we should be worrying ourselves about? Right. We should be worrying ourselves about God's kingdom and following God and seeking his righteousness. And then all of these things will be added to us. So he uses Solomon as an example of that yes. blessing. So your point is well taken where it, it, it originally is just a blessing of God. Right. And the temptation becomes comes because of our own human sinfulness and evil and our own tendency to rely on things other than God, which is the reasoning, seems to be the reasoning for that Deuteronomy 17 law in the first place, right. was that don't seek after riches in order to maintain the kingdom of God. Right. Right. Seek after God in order to maintain the kingdom of God, not riches, right. not massive armies, not peace treaties sealed with marriage, right? right? So yes, and, and I, I, I like obviously did. It, can wealth be a test? Yes, yes, it can be, but it also was a blessing. And the queen in second first Kings eleven, the queen of Sheba comes, and she ends up blessing God because of his economic wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, not even just he was clearly wise in different respects, but she was like. Your wealth, like, like no kings, like there's something about you that's radically different and look how right. you're governing your people and everything. Right. So she ends up praising God for his wisdom. So mm -hmm. it's in one sense, it's like, okay, he's done some things wrong with it, but there's some things that came out of it that were, that were supposed to be intended. It's, I, the irony here is that God uses Solomon's wealth evangelistically. <laughs> That's, right. Which is something we often don't think about. Right. But that, anyway, that's a, that's a different point for a different day. And then in 1 Kings 14, it gets taken away. God allows Pharaoh Shishak to come in and take it all away because the kingdom has fallen away from him. That's right. It's fallen away from him. So Rehoboam is severely humbled at that point. Right. But still doesn't really get the hint. Well, I got another question for you. Awesome. Okay, so Solomon, right, has two kids. <laughs> Solomon has right? kids, yes. Has kids, and then there's the kingdom divides he, because as we yeah. talked about, he turns away, yeah, right, and then he turns away from God, which is very sad. Um, but because of this, you have two kingdoms: Israel of the north, Judah of the south. So, what are the main differences between these two? Because it kind of just sounds like they're identical, apart from the fact that one's two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, mm -hmm. and the north's ten tribes. So you're like, okay, but aren't they just like if, like identical, like politically, economic, all these, what's the differences between these? Yeah, so there's a lot, there's there's pretty massive differences that, that show themselves throughout the history. So uh, first of all, tribal differences and la land mass differences. So you've already mentioned that the, the tribes that served the kings were different. So the original kings of this split Israel is Rehoboam, who's in the line of David, it, it, um, in the southern kingdom, which is just Judah and Benjamin, right? So the territory of Israel was controlled by the tribes. So whatever tribes followed the kings, that land went to the kings. So Judah, the land of Judah was made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, that, that tribal territory, much smaller than the northern kingdom of Israel who had the other 10 tribes who were loyal to Jeroboam, who was not in the line of David at all. So that's the first main difference is the land masses uh, and also the kings themselves. So all of the kings of the tri of the kingdom of Judah came from the line of David with a brief interruption where a queen um, of Judah ruled and she was the 
um, evil daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. It was a bad scene. There, so there was a brief uh, time period where she reigned, but she wasn't a king in proper. She was a queen. So all of the other, all of the kings of Judah came from the line of David, whereas the kings of northern Israel changed all the time. The longest dynasty, I believe, was that of Jehu. So a dynasty is just a family of successive rulers. So a father and then a son and then a grandson and a great-grandson. So I believe the longest dynasty of the northern kingdom of Israel was Jehu, and it was only four generations long, um, which I think works out to about 50 years. So in all of its hundreds of years history, the kings were changing out all the time and family life, very unstable. Um, Also, massive religious difference. So in Judah, the religion was supposed to revolve around the temple of God and largely did, but got sideswiped by idol worship. So idols were set up in the temple. High places were high places were built by Solomon. Thanks, Solomon, uh, all over Judah as well. Uh, and that that kind of was their history, but they still had the temple. And in northern Israel, to replace the temple, they developed the cities of Bethel and Dan, which had religious histories going back in Israel. I mean, think of Bethel. Bethel is the place where Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, had that vision of a staircase from heaven and angels ascending and descending on it, which is why he named it the house, the house of God. Dan has a pretty dubious history in the time period of the judges, but it is a religious history. Um, So that was their main religion. uh, And Ahab and Jezebel kind of melded that with Baal worship. So yeah, there's a landmass difference. There's a kingship difference. There's a religious difference. And also there's a something that we shouldn't ignore is there is a massive um, political pressure difference. And what I mean by that is the land of Israel in and of itself is at a crossroads. It's a trade route between Egypt and the rest of Mesopotamia uh, because like down south is very deserty. So uh, uh, whoever controlled the land of Israel had massive control over trade. And so um, northern Israel was constantly under pressure of being taken over by various nations. And I think this goes a long way in explaining uh, a lot of the dynasty shifts as well, because people would be unhappy with the way that kings were dealing with this pressure. Uh, For example, we see the Assyrian Empire coming in and before they destroy Northern Israel, they they subjugate it. So it becomes a vassal nation for the the last several dynasties. And I don't wanna get off into it, but you see you see a lot of changing of power in Northern Israel. And I think that's probably because in the later years, the people are unhappy with the yearly tribute that they're having to give to Assyria. And so it goes back and forth. Right. Yeah. So a lot of differences between Northern Israel and Southern Judah. Cool. Yeah. I think that nails it. I have nothing to say. Like, I think you did a perfect job. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. But I do have another question for you. Sure. Uh, our last question before the big question yes. is pertains to some prophets. So why does the text focus so much on Elijah and Elisha? Oh my goodness. Because how much time? The whole time we've been we dealing with kings, it's called the book of Kings. And then all of a sudden these two prophets come up and yeah. we deal with it from I think first Kings seventeen to second Kings thirteen. Like that's quite a bit of time that's emphasis that's put on these two guys. Yes. So what's going on there? Why would the text put so much emphasis on these two? Well, Elijah is a is a really really influential was a really really influential figure in the history of Israel. Right. I mean, he's this prophet of God. He he is not afraid of King Ahab and Jezebel. This is the time period he's in. So Ahab and Jezebel are melding Baal worship now and Asherah worship into the um religion of northern Israel and they're tremendously evil and they have they they have a essentially it's not genocidal but like they have a I'm my my words are failing me yes they they have a policy of attempting to wipe out true prophets of God literally murdering them because of who they serve and so this is a very pivotal moment obviously for the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And so we get this really interesting view into what the prophets of God were called to do, which was to interrupt the kings, the leaders of the people of God 
with the word of God. Now, this didn't just happen with Elijah and Elisha, but I think probably it's uh, the time of Elisha and Elijah is really highlighted because this was a pivotal moment where God used his prophets to try to correct the kings of Israel. Now, later prophets who did similar work, but in different times, they have their own books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? They have their own books. Elijah and Elisha do not have their own books, but they have this tremendous amount of time given to them. And, And we learn really interesting things about the way God had set up for his kingdom to be run. So we have the prophets of God, God speaking to these men of God. In the case of Elijah and Elisha, there are women prophets as well that he speaks through to give words not only to the, not, not only to the people of Israel and Judah. So remind the people of Israel and Judah about my law, but also convict them, tell them what they are doing wrong, how they are sinning and what that's going to do. It's going to bring judgment on them. So remind them of my word, show them how I'm not, they're not following my word. And then we also see the prophets of God um, giving direct answers to the kings uh, and queens of northern Israel and southern Judah. But in the case of Elijah and Elisha, northern Israel, uh, you know, they're asking them questions about war. It, is, should, I, should I conduct warfare here? And Elijah says yes or no. Yeah. Like inquiring of God Jehoshaphat, from the prophets yeah. of God and Jehoshaphat as well. Um, yeah, so we get this really interesting view into the internal workings of the kingdom. And even though the kingdom was far from God, we see how God had placed men and women uh, like as his mouthpieces. Right. So we see that through the work of Elijah and Elisha. We also see how God used the prophets of God to interfere with international politics as well. Right. For example, in the case of Naaman, right? Uh, and, and, and even before Naaman with Hazael, we see Elijah as one of his last tasks of God sent to um, Hazael, who was going to become the king of Syria, uh, of Syria or Iran, depending on the translation of your Bible. Uh, and, and so he actually anoints him future king of a pagan nation, right? right. A nation, admittedly, that was going to interact <laughs> with, with northern Israel. That just makes sense. Those are the nations right, that Elijah right. could touch, right? Yeah, yeah. And then we see Elisha um, uh, being uh, being confronted with uh, Naaman, a commander uh, in, in a pagan military, yeah. and, and, and healing him through God's power and then also essentially converting him to a person of God. I think that the most interesting thing that you said there is that every king has their own prophet, essentially. Not their own, but yeah. But but Saul had Samuel, right? David had Nathan. Mm -hmm. You kind of go down the list. It's like, okay, well, then you have these prophets that go down. The prophet's job is to correct and basically keep the king and remind the kings. Yes. And, you know, that's clearly something that doesn't happen today. It's the church's role for, let's say, the church's role for our our political situation, which is people forget about because we want to be like, oh, you know. Hey, we can't even keep ourselves like that. We, we need, we need God to, to speak into our churches. We yeah. need to keep ourselves good before we can even, even think about, I think. Yeah, that's right. We're kind of like a little men of God running around. We're going to get eaten by lions soon. Yeah, so it not seems good. Like, no, not good. I know. So yeah, so I think that that's, that, that role that the prophet plays with the king is actually quite important. And I think it says something. It's um, archetypal of how we should really consider the church and its role with with uh, politics, mm-hmm. not as and not as the same office. Mm-hmm. That's important because they can't be the same thing. Mm-hmm. They clearly have different functions, different responsibilities, different roles. But at the same time, they're intimately connected because they're dealing with uh, the moral authority and moral structure of a society. Right. Right. Now, obviously, one's more fundamental. The prophet's more fundamental in what he's yes. doing because he's getting to the core of things. But the the political role, the overarching thing. Uh, the overarching um, societal structure is really important for changing how people think. Right, it's it's really important. So the two are complementary. One's mm-hmm. more one's uh, superior than the other. But um, at the end of the day, as we see, as we talked about, these get fused together within Christ. But um, at the end of the day, it's it's the prophet's role is something that I think is lost today. But hey. okay, I want to bring up one more thing sure. of why the time period of Elijah and Elisha is really expanded upon. Okay, so the later prophets are going to say that the coming of the Messiah is going to be announced by a prophet like Elijah. Right. 
Okay. And so it makes sense then that Elijah's life and his mission is greatly expounded upon in the scripture. Right. It's held for us. Then when we get to the time period of the New Testament, we see John the Baptist being that voice of Elijah. He's not, he he himself is, is quoted in the Gospels as rejecting the concept that he is somehow a reincarnate Elijah. That's not what he is. But Jesus is like. But he is the voice, is the voice of, Elijah, of yeah. Elijah, right? Making straight the paths. Uh, and and he also himself, he dresses, John the Baptist dresses like Elijah. Uh, we're given a description of uh, of Elijah's clothes, and then we're given a description of John the Baptist's clothes, which is a really interesting thing to compare, you know, in Kings and, um, and Matthew. Uh, and the Gospels, uh, and so there's this there's this this typology that a lot of people point to, and they say uh, Elijah and Elisha are a type; they're a foreshadowing of John the Baptist and Christ. Right. And it's not a perfect one for one. That's no. not how foreshadows work. Right, right, right. But but we can look at the time period of Elijah and what he was called to do, and who and and you know he was called to call call the nation of Israel to repentance, call Ahab to repentance, uh, and remind the people of God's word, so is John the Baptist. Right. So is John the Baptist. And, you know, just as Elijah called down fire when he was in that competition with the Baal prophets, think about this. Elijah calls for water to be poured all over the sacrifice. So much so that it's filling up a trench that he dug around. It's so much water. And then he calls down fire and God sends fire down and burns up the sacrifice and evaporates all the water. And John the Baptist is known for baptizing. And he and it's really interesting that he says, one is coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right. Interesting. It's very interesting. It's yeah. very interesting. And then how Elisha receives a double portion of the spirit of God and and the Bible records how he actually it records exactly double the amount of miracles that Elijah performs except the last one is after he's dead which is really interesting his dead bones bring someone back to life right that's very interesting <laughs> because that's a it's a it's a foreshadowing of Christ of course after he dies he he raises again and his death and resurrection brings us what right Eternal life. I think what there is really important is that there's always a direction to everything. So everything's pointing to something. Mm -hmm. So to look at it, be like, oh, it's just Elisha in and of himself is a failure to understand what the text is saying. Everything's pointing to something. Even as what you're saying with Elijah being John the Baptist and Elisha being Christ, of course, it can't be a perfect one-to-one because yeah. Christ is also parallel to Moses. He's parallel to Joshua. Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek. Just go down the list. He's like parallel to all these, all these amazing yes, guys. It's okay. So it can't be a one-to-one. No, um, it's not. But at the same time. These things point to. Exactly. These things are all pointing to some of the culmination of the law, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so that, I think that's really interesting. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So is that it or do we have any more? Okay. I want to move now into the big question. Okay. If you don't mind. So I am going to direct this to you first because you've been directing a lot of questions on yes. me. So I'm okay, going to sure. turn the tables, Matlock. All right. All right. All right <laughs> and sure. aim this one towards you. So right, right, our right. big question is, yeah, you need more tea, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, why would God forgive the most evil people? Why would God, because in our reading today, we we, we see God um, accepting Ahab's repentance. Right. Why? Right. Ahab is still evil. He's he's called the most evil king of the right. northern kingdom. And yet God delays his God delays the judgment on Ahab's house. Right. Because Ahab and, repents. And I know too people have a problem with this for Christianity. In fact, I think it was uh I think I remember reading years ago Stone Cold Steve Austin the famous wrestler guy. The wrestler guy. The wrestler hated, WWE? didn't like Christianity for this reason. Because God forgave Ahab? Because, no, for God, because God forgives evil people. Oh. So he, he hated, because like, how could God forgive Hitler if Hitler repented and stuff? So this question actually strikes a chord with people because I think deep down, people just think they're inherently good. Right. I've never done anything wrong. So That's so, very disturbing. Oh, I know. So people... people. I had I, never thought of it from that. I've never considered that, that people are... That's... That people would be disgusted by God because they think they're 
better than other people. That, that's exactly, well, that's the issue. I never thought it was how framed God, in that way. How could God forgive someone like Hitler who murdered all these, how could God forgive someone like Ahab who murdered all these people? How, mm-hmm. could, how could God forgive Nineveh who were like, I, I, I keep bringing it up from Jonah, but you know, Syria was just terrible, right? How could God forgive these evil people? You can go down the list. Manasseh, he forgave Manasseh. He forgives them. But what's interesting about this case is that when you repent, this repentance process, mm-hmm. okay, you have to be committed to it throughout the rest of your life. So it's not like, for instance, uh, Ahab repents. Yes. And then goes back into it. It was a, it was a temporal mm-hmm. repentance, if I recall. Well, what? Well, it it just tells us, it just tells us, uh, Elijah, Elijah prophesies the death of Ahab, prophesies the death of, um, his, like his, his family line, Ahab and Jezebel. And then, uh, this is first Kings 21 verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Right. So God, there's still judgment that's coming. Yes. But it's not going to, the Ahab's not going to see this physical judgment. Right. But doesn't later on, doesn't he go back into poor behavior anyways? Here's, uh, here's what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, like chronologically, yes. we're not really sure when that was. But yes. Right. Okay, that's, I mean, like right. he was still, he so, was still not an evil guy. Right. And of course. So why is God forgiving? But he accepts this prophecy. It's, he it's, knows that it's right. going to happen. So my point in bringing this up was, mm-hmm. okay, so it's, it's a sincere repentance. Mm-hmm. God's like, oh, he, he actually meant what he meant. He humbled himself. He's humbled himself. Having said that. It wasn't, there was no perseverance with it. So eventually he comes out of the road. He, he kind of gives way in other things in his life. So God withholds judgment from this thing in particular. So that Ahab knows that God is a forgiving God and he will forgive you. That's one thing. But then people of this nature who are like this tend to end up going back and falling into this. Now, falling into these patterns of evil. Now, I'm only saying all these things because it pertains to how we look at salvation, this idea of repentance. But... More importantly here is that in this moment of repentance, right, if you're sincere, doesn't matter, like, you could look at the smallest of sin, right, mm-hmm. and the biggest of sin. How would God forgive the biggest of sin? Well, if you were put into Ahab's shoes, and not you at this time, his whole life, you grew up, you were pampered, you were given everything you wanted, you become a spoiled brat, okay, and then you make decisions, and you make a decision that ends up killing one person, mm-hmm. okay, just one person. Your decision. Immediately, you're culpable. You're immediately culpable. It doesn't matter if you kill 50 people. You're eternally culpable for killing one person. Mm-hmm. Right? Especially if it's intentional. Like you're culpable for these things. So God forgiving a bunch more of those things. See what I'm saying? It's just like, it's 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 the, virtually the same thing. God can forgive anything because you've committed evil no matter what. So deep down, how could God, how could God forgive the most evil people? Well, we have to look at ourselves for a moment because when you're put into certain situations, you yourself could commit terrible evils mm-hmm. and not even be aware of the evils you could commit. So I think that to get to the, to the deeper point of this concept is addressing what is the nature of evil itself. Christianity teaches, Jesus says this very plainly, uh, that humans are evil. Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus goes, you know, would you give a, a stone for asking for bread? You, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, he's basically like, look, it's just very plain that you're evil. And looking at what that means with evil, it means that evil is very subtle. It's subliminal. Mm-hmm. You, uh, subliminal. you might not even recognize that you're evil, even though you could be ve- or are very evil. Mm-hmm. So evil is not just something that an action that you do. So, you know, Jesus says that if you lust, you've done something evil. You've committed adultery. If you hate your brother, you've killed him. Uh, because it's in your heart and that was your intentions, but you didn't fall through in your intentions because something in society, it wasn't beneficial for you to do in society. So, so there's a societal standard like, well, I actually prefer to live my life the way it is now rather than kill this guy. Although if I had the opportunity, I would kill this guy. Um, so it's kind of like, okay, you're, you're still evil. You, it's just the opportunity wasn't there, the means, but the motive was there. The means and the opportunity weren't there. So you just didn't do it. So the point here is that like people are, I think, are deep down evil. 
Uh, and so when we say the most evil, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends because even though he's called the most evil king, there are some people who become so evil, the Bible teaches, that they don't repent. Yeah. They end up hating God completely. Yeah. Right? So these people aren't so evil to the point that they don't repent. Ahab's sons. Ahab's sons. Ahab's sons didn't repent. I mean, you can you could play this out. Well, God says that the judgment then will come in the days of Ahab's sons. What if Ahab's sons repented? Right. Well, then God would have done the same thing. That's right. And and so, we see this we see this with Manasseh as well. So Manasseh, right. Manasseh, the evil king in southern Judah, he was the most evil king in southern Judah. But he repents. Right. Truly. Right. Repents. And so he's forgiven. But judgment still comes on southern Judah in the form of destruction by Babylon, right. not in Manasseh's day, but they're judged for the sins of Manasseh because they continued in the sins right. of Manasseh. The people continued in the sins of Manasseh. So he had started a, a, a trend of severe and deep evil that the people did not repent from. Right. But if they had repented, right. what would have happened? So the question is kind of a misnomer where it's saying the most evil people, where it's mm -hmm. like, well, Ahab, although he's the most evil king, isn't the most evil person compared to someone who wouldn't repent. Right. So do you see what I'm saying? So it's like when we look at these mm -hmm. things, it's like, okay, the, the very bare minimum cost to become a Christian is repentance, which means yeah. sincerely sorry <clears throat> and sincerely stopping, right? It, and, it, it's humbling yourself before God because rather than thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person. Right. You have to... Stop and go. You you admit that God is right. That sin is a problem. Any form right. of sin is a problem. That's right. And worthy of judgment. And when you confess that and you repent of it, I don't want to live like that anymore. That's when God right. forgives. And in the Christian sense, there's a lot, right? Like we, Paul goes over the list of laws that are just – list of the, 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 the rulings behaviors, in the flesh, yeah. behaviors in the flesh that are just evil, right? You won't come into heaven. You won't get into heaven if you if you behave like this. If you persist in them. If yeah. you persist in them, right, and live a lifestyle of these things. Uh, but in the one action, you can still repent. Repentance, again, means to stop. It turns – if you're looking at, like, walking down a road, uh, you're, you're, everything you do in life has a direction. So if your direction is going down this way, well – you can keep going down that path, but if you don't stop and turn back the other way, mm -hmm. right? There's no, there's no. Once you go past that stop sign, there's no going back. Like mm -hmm. that's it. You're stuck. You can't turn around. There's no U-turns. Right? It's it's kind of done. So um, th there's certain points in people's lives that they have to come to the conclusion that uh, repentance is what's required of you to actually follow God. Mm -hmm. If Abraham's if Abraham is willing to repent, then in one area. Like the Ninevites, mm -hmm. one area, and they just don't know the right hand from their left, then that means once they learn, because they repented one area in their life about their right hand, what that means, what their left hand, and what that means, well, then God can work with that. Yeah. He, He's he, tremendously merciful. That's exactly it, it, right. It exposes him as tremendously merciful. That's right. And, and also tremendously powerful, because I've also spoken with people where they truly believe that they've done they they've done way too much that it's just it's impossible for god to forgive them and that's a that's a false humility i'm not saying that you're not actually if you're feeling that that you're not actually truly feeling that but what i'm saying is is god strong enough to be able to forgive is he strong enough to atone for that sin. Is Christ's work strong enough to atone for any sin? Well, God says yes. Christ says yes. So if then we're saying, no, it's impossible, we're diminishing the work of Christ. We're diminishing the strength of God. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. And and so that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it, getting, getting back to that Stone Cold Steve Austin thing, that is... <laughs> So arrogant. Well, I know. That is intensely arrogant and how ironic it is that God's forgiveness requires humility. Right. It requires humility. So how, how ironic is it then that people rejecting God based off of this, it's just them proving how non-repentant they are and that, how unfortunately that's right. not accepting of God's 
mercy that's right and they have the, become the irony behind this too is that when you have don't have god there is no objective right and wrong mm -hmm. there is no objective good and evil mm -hmm. so then what are you really saying then oh god's bad because he forgives evil people it's like well are you evil for thinking that way mm -hmm. well yeah it sounds like it because everyone need everyone's done something wrong in their lives mm -hmm. you need to be forgiven or ask for forgiveness mm -hmm. so it's kind of like it's just a backwards way of this looking this is something reality. that should make us joyful right the fact that god can forgive even the most heinous of crimes. i know is, i know and, and that but, but but that also doesn't mean that there's not going to be justice god brings justice that's he right brings judgment on evil there is a price that will be paid the amazing thing is that christ has paid for us to be forgiven. That's right. Like this is amazing. This is good news. Uh and yeah, so let's not let's not hold back God's mercy in this. Let's celebrate God's mercy. Let's celebrate I know. that this that this exists, that God exists and he is merciful. To hold to charge God and hold him culpable for being too merciful to, in my mind is just an oxymoron. Yeah. It's just it doesn't make We're any sense. We're his creations. Yeah. He loves us. He wants us to come to him and be yeah. forgiven. That's awesome. And it's That's also, great. And also, not to go too far into this, but it's also a misunderstanding of what justice is. Because yeah. you're like, oh, I want justice. Oh, these evil guys need to be killed. They need to be taken care of. It's like, yeah, that's going to happen. But if you have justice without mercy, you actually don't have justice. You just have legalism. At some point, you have to step aside and go, God knows more than me. That's right. He is merciful. He is just. He's going to figure this out. That's right. He is going to find the perfect balance because yeah. it is impossible for me to do so. Because <laughs> in in this their yeah. sense of mind, if you have someone who even makes a mistake, mm -hmm. if there's no mercy at all, okay, someone makes a mistake and doesn't realize because the depths of the human mind is just it's it's unfat we don't understand it yet. We're just, we're just trying to figure it out, always trying to figure it out. But if people don't even, if they're not aware of their of how evil they are, mm -hmm. right? And they like there has to be mercy in that once they become aware about it. That's the whole idea. It's like the hearts are so hardened that you're not aware about how evil you are. Mm -hmm. So to, to, to have mercy and to not to have mercy through that process, again, it is, it's to, to think you're good when there's no such thing as goodness because God's not good. If God's not good, there is humans can't be good because we just made the term up and you can, you know, oh, you're good, but you're also evil. And it's just the whole thing becomes a hodgepodge mess. So to me, it's just like, why does God forgive the most evil people? Well, he forgives anyone who's willing to repent, right? Yeah, and it's, humble themselves And humble him. themselves. Who, who, anyone who's willing, who wants to be good. That's what that means. Oh, I don't want to be evil. I want to be good. That requires objective goodness. Yeah, anyway. The good news is that there is true. Yes. There, there, there is true. There is objective morality. Yeah. God is just and God is merciful and we can approach him. That's right. Thanks uh, uh, thanks to the, the forgiveness of Christ. All of this is very good news. Now, if you have comments, if you have questions, pop them in the comment section below or email us. We would love to talk to you. We would love to discuss your Bible questions. So until next time, happy reading, happy studying. See you next week. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.